C'è la luna mezza mare, mamma mia, mamma redare. Set the fear upon the sea, fill your me and bachacho Welcome, everybody, and welcome to Hollywood Godfather Podcast. We're back again with another fabulous story, an interesting guest. He's been on before. We just can't wait for this next episode. Pat, introduce our new friend. We are fortunate enough to have Mark Shaw again as our guest. Uh, we're not going to tell the readers, uh, the listeners, rather, that we handcuffed him to a drain pipe to keep him here. <laughs> that said, he was kind enough to uh, send me his latest book, Denial of Justice, uh, which we're going to talk to him about in this segment. Now, let me preface this by saying uh, everybody heard of the JFK assassination, obviously. You know, uh, most people who lived through that time, uh, there's uh, the old uh, saying, you know, everybody knows where they were when Mm. JFK was assassinated. But one of the key figures in the investigation of the assassination is virtually overlooked by uh, people that weren't around then and uh, look into the history. They overlook Miss Dorothy Kilgallen, who was a very, very well-known uh, columnist. Uh, uh, she was a superstar for her time, uh, a powerful woman, very intelligent across uh, all kinds of uh, media. She was on a television show. She had a radio show with her husband, uh, Richard Colmer, who would, used to play Boston Blackie in the, uh, 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 in the uh, High Days of Radio. She was on What's My Line, which was a very, very popular quiz show. And uh, she delved into the JFK assassination to the point where uh, she mysteriously died uh, a couple of years after the well, I believe it was three years after the assassination. And uh, Mark Shaw wrote an excellent book, which I am currently reading, I'm about halfway through, called Denial of Justice. And this is a deep dive into Dorothy Kilgallen's life, her untimely death, what it means to history, and how she really died. So I'd like to give this over to uh, Mark Shaw. Mark, thank you for coming back. And visiting with us. It's yes, a pleasure. Thank you, thank you. Now, where do you start with Dorothy Kilgallen? I think uh, for the people who don't know who she was, mm-hmm. give us a little background leading up to her involvement with the assassination. Well, she was an amazing woman. Uh, college dropout. Uh, back in the days when you know women were supposed to be in third place, not second place. Uh, she overcame all the gender uh, obstacles she had and became a famous columnist for the New York Journal American, which was a huge newspaper in the 50s and 60s. And, uh, you know, she, she elevated herself to a columnist. Uh, she had uh, voice of Broadway. New York Post called her the most powerful female voice in America. Uh, Ernest Hemingway said she was the greatest female writer of the time. She had all the great sources uh, that anyone had. In fact, my uh, she covered the uh, Dr. Sam Shepard case, and one of my favorite photos of Dorothy, for your listeners, if they want to go to this site, is the Dorothy Kilgallen story.org. And all of her columns, photos, uh, interviews with uh, those people that knew her, including Jack Ruby's co-counsel, Joe Tonahel, who talks about uh, Dorothy being the only reporter to interview Jack Ruby during his trial. I mean, she was big time, and she had the greatest sources. And so... Uh, I learned about her that way, and then I started to look into why she was interested in the JFK assassination, and here's why. She and JFK knew each other uh, before he became president and then afterwards. Um, She used to hang out at his, uh, he used to hang out at her home playing charades and all of that. And so when JFK died, uh, Dorothy really didn't believe that it could possibly be this Oswald alone theory stuff. And she reached back and remembered that when she took her, her little boy, uh, Carrie, to the White House, uh, JFK made a, a big uh, a fuss over him about the letters he brought from third grade class and all that. And, and so it was personal from Dorothy when she got into this. In fact, uh, a quote that I had from one of her columns was that uh, what I remember is a tall man stooping over a little boy. Uh, making a fuss over the third grade letters that he brought. And this is the man who was killed in, in Dallas. And so 
when Dorothy went after something, uh, just like I think Gianni, that kind of a person, when they went after something, they went after it full bore. So she went to Dallas. She attended the Jack Ruby trial. I exposed in Dallas the uh, denial of justice there for the first time, the Jack Ruby trial transcripts, where she learned that this Oswald loan theory made no sense. That, uh, that um, Ruby had, uh, there was testimony in the trial that Ruby said he would be there when Oswald was going to be transferred. He used the police to get into the basement. He made like a reporter. So Dorothy knew all of this. And the first thing that she did after interviewing Ruby and after the Ruby trial was to go to New Orleans. She made one trip down there with a hairdresser that Gianni uh, will certainly recognize named Mark Sinclair that we'll talk about in just a minute. I know him well, man. Absolutely. And so they went down there and she called him from the hotel and said, Mark, you go back to New York City and don't you ever tell anybody that you were here. Don't ask any questions. Just go back there. Well, I believe through the evidence that I found that she was investigating Marcelo because she had learned from Ruby that uh, obviously Ruby was connected to Marcelo and so was Oswald. So then we get to November of 1965. Uh, excuse me. Yes. Uh, 1960. Uh, Five, yes. And uh, Dorothy is on the job, and she made the same mistake that Marilyn Monroe made when she said she was going to go to the press and talk about the Kennedys and the love affairs and everything. Dorothy kept saying to people, I'm going to crack this case wide open if, to the hairdressers. If the wrong people knew what I know about the JFK assassination, it would cost me my life. I'm afraid for my life and my family. I'm getting a gun. Uh, I know who killed the president of the United States, and I'm going to expose that in my new book I'm writing for Random House. Well, And the thing is, Mark, if I can interrupt you for a second, she had the power to do that. People listened when she wrote. People listened yeah. when she spoke. Well, she was, yeah. if, if you look she was, at that one, if you look at this one photo of her on DorothyKilgallenStory.org, you'll see her in the middle of the courtroom at the Dr. Sam Shepard case, which became the fugitive, as you know, and all the other reporters are gathered around her. So she had that kind of reputation. Yes, she did. Well, she was a powerful syndicated writer at that time, too. Over 200 newspapers carried her. Do you remember much about her, uh, Gianni? You know, I, 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 I've seen her numerous times with, you know, uh, Billy Martin. They all hung out late at night, Earl Wilson. She was all over New York. I mean, she, mm -hmm. every night she was out. And yeah, she, she wanted to be yeah. out. She wanted to eat at the ground. So because of Costello, I bunked into her numerous times. I remember she was having drinks with Jackie Gleason and uh, Joe DiMaggio at T Toot Shaw's. So, you uh -huh. know, and I just, I didn't know her, but and I loved Jackie Gleason and Frank Gifford at the time was the, the, the star of the Giants football team. Oh, right. Yes. Uh -huh. So that's, yeah, I mean, I, so what do you her. think she had, Mark? Well, um, you know, Dorothy had the best sources. Uh, she she uh, knew what Ruby had told her. Uh, she had interviewed the chief of police in Dallas. She had basically looked at this like I did through Dorothy's eyes that, you know, it was basically a mob hit. She knew about the 60 election that had been fixed. She knew about uh, how the, the, the mobsters had been pulled into helping Joe and how he double crossed her. I think that's what she had in her JFK assassination file. And that was what she was going to print. I think that what she would have printed would have been two things. Number one, that Marcello had masterminded the assassination. And number two, that J. Edgar Hoover had covered it up. And that's what really, I think, was the lethal uh, material. And I will tell you that until recently, and this is even in, in the book you're reading, uh, it's brand new um, and will be in the new book I'm, I'm finishing. Uh, I always wondered what uh, Dorothy, uh, what, the, what the wrong people found out about what Dorothy was going to put in the book. And uh, if when we get off the air, I want to mention a name to uh, Gianni because this guy got in touch with me. He was a, 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 a um, casino boss in Las Vegas. And through an inter intermediary, he told me a lot about Dorothy being out there and all of this. And then at the end of the conversation, I happened to say, well, do you know who Ron Pataki was? And that Ron Pataki was Dorothy's uh, last love affair. She had shared everything with him in the JFK assassination and all of that. And, and this, uh, this source said to me, well, of course I do. And here's what I know. Just before Dorothy was died, this Ron Pataki got in some sort of trouble, Mark. And I don't know what it was, but I think it was financial gambling debts or whatever. And the wrong people came to him 
the government agents or rogue agents or the underworld people and said, you know, Ron, we can get you out of trouble, but we need to know what Dorothy Kilgallen is going to put in her book. And so he said that, that, that Pataki came through, that he told them what I just said to you she was going to put in the book. And it, I still get a chill when I say this because this casino boss said to me, Mark, when the wrong people knew what Dorothy was going to put in that book, she was dead. Okay, how soon after that incident did she die? Within a month. Within okay, a month. Now, one of the most interesting parts of the book, and granted I'm only halfway through it, and I uh, can reiterate how fascinating and readable this book is. Thank you. Uh, is the episode with Mark Sinclair when he comes upon her body. Yeah, you know, uh, we should we should mention, of course, Gianni knew uh, Mark Sinclair through the beauty salon, and and I have all of that information. I think it's on a about page, about page one twenty five or something like that about how Sinclair ended up uh, basically at that uh, Dutch or I don't know if you pronounce it right Dutch salon yeah. that, um, that Lily Dutch that talks about in the book. Well, he and, he and he and uh, Kenneth were partners. Yeah, I think they were. No, I, I know they were. they were. I mean, that's, yeah. you know. And you mentioned the Kennedys being there. Uh, they used to take care of Jackie's hair there. I yeah, mean, there's and then Jackie, these, uh... Jackie financed Kenneth to open Kenneth's. <laughs> well, I'm not surprised. So back to what Pat said. Uh, here's what happens. Uh, Dorothy Kilgallen um, appears on What's My Line on November 8th, 1965, in the evening. Uh, it was on at 1030. Uh, then she goes to P.J. Clark's, and I sat right next to the table where she was the night she died. She had a couple drinks and then went to the Regency Hotel bar. Uh, a woman who had appeared on What's My Line was there and saw her with a gentleman in the corner. And we now know that that was Ron Pataki, who's admitted he was the last person to see her alive. He's still alive today, and I'm trying to get the New York Police Department to investigate him. Uh, but uh, we know that then she ended up at home. And at 9 o'clock in the morning on November 8th, that was on November 7th, in the morning of November 8th, Mark Sinclair walks upstairs because he was going to fix her hair for a meeting that she had at um, her son's school. And he walks into the area where she uh, changed her clothes and everything, and she's not there, and she should be there. And he walks into a bedroom, which is adjacent, and he sees her, and she's on the bed, and it's, you know, it's so emotional the way he puts it. He walked up. Uh, she was sitting upright. Uh, he felt her. He knew right away that she was dead. And then what amazed him was, as you know, Pat, from reading the book, is that she was wearing night clothes she never wore to bed. She had her hair piece on. She had her false eyelashes on. Uh, she had her makeup on. Uh, there was a book on her lap upside down. And so he knew something was wrong. And and, and he went to the butler and, and then to Richard, who was drunk all the time, her husband, and told him what had happened, and then he got out of there because he was scared. So there's a real emotional feeling to what Mark Sinclair found. But when the police came then, they only uh, they were they were there about three hours later, and we have the uh, the testimony in denial of justice of Brenda DeJordan, who was Dorothy's butler's daughter, who said that on the very morning that Dorothy died, FBI agents or agents posing as FBI agents came to the townhouse. And they confiscated all of her files, all of her documents, everything they could find, which we believe included the JFK assassination file, which is going to be the basis for the book. So none of these records were ever found? No, they're not. They, wow. And I'm still chasing them. And I still think that I'm going to find them at some particular point. But just to finish that, the police then came in the afternoon. They took one look at an empty secondol bottle and decided that she must have overdosed from drugs. She didn't have a drug problem. She had no alcoholic problem, but that's what they surmised. And what followed then was no police investigation because when they had an autopsy by the Manhattan Medical Examiner's Office, they basically, and I, I, I uh, exposed the autopsy for the first time in The Reporter Who Knew Too Much, the first book, and then Denial of Justice now, which shows that she didn't have one barbiturate in her system, but actually three, which couldn't have been possible for her to accidentally have died that she was obviously murdered but when they announced what happened to dorothy they said it was a combination of ethanol and barbiturates circumstances undetermined and they gave that out 
to uh, they kept that uh, information to the to themselves. Instead, they told the the media that she died accidentally, and therefore. I have a quote from the detective who said, look, I never knew there was anything unusual about her death, and therefore, I never investigated. And that was in November 8th, no, 7th of 65. Yes, 8th of, she died on the 8th, in the right. mor early morning hours of the 8th of November. Do you remember where you were? Yeah, I, 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 do, I definitely know where I was. <laughs> but I was... Do you have an alibi for this? Yeah, uh, I, <laughs> yeah I was I was in... Vegas at my club, and uh, uh, the, the situation was 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 uh, my question was there three guys in the morning posing FBI or just two? Uh, we don't know that. I can ask that, but I never found that out. Would that have made a difference? Yeah, because the third guy would have been the doctor. Uh huh. Uh huh. I'll was she known to have had it? Uh, was she known to have had a drug problem? No, no, she did. Drank. In fact, uh, it's she drank amazing. A lot, that's all. Um, yeah, she drank a lot. Uh, it's amazing, you know, and you guys have found this to be true. People now read your book and they come to you with tips and things like that. I've gotten tips from all over the world from people. And one of them was from a, a girl who knew the pharmacist that Dorothy had out in the Hamptons who said that she was clean, that she, yeah, she still drank some, but she had really quit that and there were no drug problems of any kind. But, you know, it was just like with Marilyn's death. They took one look at those empty uh, pill bottles in her bedroom and decided it must have been uh, a, an overdose or suicide. Remember, remember the autopsy uh, in, in, in Maryland's case? A probable suicide yeah, is probable. the best they could come up with. Right. And with Dorothy, circumstances undetermined. So, you know, both, both women uh, had no investigation really of their death at all. None of, all, none of that happened. The butler uh, was a 24-hour resident of that brownstone? Yeah, they live there, and that's why Brenda, who I happened to find up there on Amsterdam Avenue in uh, New York City and interviewed her with my wife, gave us all this inside information about Dorothy, that she was investigating the JFK assassination, that her father warned her. And many people have asked me, you know, why did Dorothy open her mouth about what she was going to put in the book? Well, frankly, I think she thought she was invincible. She was so powerful she was such, you know, well-known and all of that. I don't think she thought that anybody could touch her. So she would have she had to reckless. She would have had to let in her killers, no? Well, we think no, that it's Pataki. We think it's Pataki who set it up. And and we found some forensic evidence that there was a glass uh, on the night table and it had the remnants of uh, phenobarbital. It was tulanol, secanol, and phenobarbital, the three barbiturates found. And there were remnants of that on the glass, uh, top of the glass, which meant, we believe, uh, and I used Dr. Cyril Weck to uh, look into some of this, and you know who that is. Yeah, he's uh, the envy out here in uh, Pittsburgh. Yeah, and he, and he basically said that, yeah, it looks like those capsules were empty. So what we think is Pataki set her up for the kill. They got her home. They, they somehow or another spiked a drink that she was drinking with the barbiturates, and that's how she was poisoned. So this case is closed. Well, as far as uh, the police, uh, the district, district attorney's office is, but I actually flew, flew to New York City uh, last month. Uh, I didn't uh, have a chance to be able to let you know I was doing that. And I met quickly with the New York police commissioner and I'd sent him already some information and asked them to have the cold case squad look into Dorothy's death. And he gave me a detective to talk to. But of course, now uh, with the virus and this, this terrible crisis with the virus, We'll put that off for a while, but I'm hoping he will look into it. I did you get any get assurance? Did you get any assurances that you, uh, they would be in touch with you? Uh, yes, that the detective would be, and and you know, I, I'm I've been through this long enough to know that that might have been just happy talk. But I I do believe I was told that I could get a fair shake from this guy, so we'll see what happens. I don't want to forget though to talk about the relationship, uh, Gianni, with uh, Frank Costello and Dorothy. Oh, Mark yeah. Sinclair, uh, actually, in the book you will read uh, when you read it, um, that part, uh, was with Dorothy when they went to Little Italy one night. And Mark said he really didn't know who Frank Costello was, but all at once Dorothy went over to a table where he was, and they sat down, and they had a nice drink and everything. And the next day— That was in Angelo's. Okay, could have been. And the next day, uh, by delivery, was a diamond necklace— for Dorothy and Sinclair says that it was so beautiful and they were worried about it being stolen. They cut it up 
and made it into earrings. Also, before that, Dorothy uh, used to go to what they uh, to PJ Clark's on Tuesday. Oh, that was a big night. Tuesday, yeah. right? And they had what they called a science club, and and everybody brought along a guest and everything. And sometimes it was a famous boxer or it was a politician or whatever. And one morning, Sinclair said she took Frank Costello with her there. Hmm. And I have a memo that was written on uh, an FBI memo that chronicles the two of them sitting there in P.J. Clark's talking about the the issues of the world or whatever with the science club. I thought you'd get a kick out of that. Well, I would have loved to get a recording of that conversation. Absolutely. So and that, she they used were to go to yeah. Elaine's a lot, too, you know. Yes. Oh, yes, absolutely. I used yeah. to see her up there a lot. Oh, you did? Oh, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> well, Elaine was a very close friend of ours. And, oh. And uh, we'd, uh -huh. we'd go there a lot. I mean, she, she's... Well, you know, it's uh, it's so funny yeah. because, you know, I was a kid in my teens and I was had access to all these places, 21. Wow. Everybody knew the kid. So when, you know, we, I'd see Walter Winchell, uh, Johnny Miller, all these guys. Sure. They, they were the sure. writers of the world at that time. And maybe you don't know this, but Frank Costello uh, backed Eugene Pope to buy what, what was called the Inquirer. Oh, no, I didn't know that. Yeah, that's why we used to get everything done there. In fact, because of my relationship with Costello, I think I uh -huh. mentioned this on the show once, I had the back page of the Inquirer for nothing. And wow. I, was, I was selling uh, Navy rings, Air Force rings, any college rings you wanted. And, I think I have one of your rings. And guess who made them, though? Mark, you really like this one. Guess who made these for me? Raymond Petriaco up in Federal Hill. <laughs> I don't know who that is. I'm he was I have a New England mob boss, but okay. he owned all the white metal business up there. So they oh, they did oh injection molding, and so I had that as a as a a side gift, and I think I was selling the rings for seventeen dollars. <laughs> so crazy. Well, you know how you know how this goes when you have a book and you hear from everybody in the world, but. It wasn't too long ago when this woman got in touch with me and told me that she used to see Dorothy at the Stork Club and oh, and yeah. Elaine's and you know all El Morocco and all those places. And I yeah, said, the "Well, Latin guys, water, they went out every night." Yeah, and I get, I said, "I'd like to talk to you." And she said, "Well, I live over in the East Bay in Oakland. You and your wife can come over." She was ninety nine. God bless. Oh, she my was gosh. as sharp as as I was, and she gave us all these accounts of what Dorothy looked like and her sister was in Dorothy's wedding and all these things. And she would talk about the mobsters that she saw there and Tallulah Bankhead getting uh, a guy got upset with her and poured clam sauce on her head. I mean, she had all these wonderful stories. I just loved her. Hmm. What became of Dorothy's family? Uh, after she died, they all faded away. I mean, well, I never heard had one son, what? didn't she? What's that? Mark, she had Dorothy one family. son? No, she had three no, kids. No, she had, she had three. You know, besides her career, she was a good mother. Uh, she and her husband were estranged. But, you know, one of the first affairs Dorothy had was with Johnny Ray, who you mu whose name you must recognize. Oh, yeah, Gianni my God. Yeah, yeah. Little white cloud that cried yeah. and everything. But yeah. she tried to be a good mother. She spent time with him and everything. But when Dorothy was killed, everything stopped. Uh, her, her parents didn't come forward. Her kids didn't come forward. The people at the... Uh, Journal American didn't come forward. None, none of her colleagues are what's my line to say, you know what? Dorothy would not have overdosed on, on drugs. That would have ha not happened. Well, people have asked me in all my presentations and everything, why didn't that happen? Well, they were all scared to death. That's why. They knew that if, 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 if the same people that killed JFK killed Dorothy, they weren't about to speak up. And here's a little tidbit for you about Mark Sinclair. On the DorothyGilgallenStory.org are two interviews with him about Dorothy, about finding the body, about New Orleans and everything. Do you know, Gianni, that he didn't talk about it until 1999? That's wow. when the interview was. He was scared to death until then, almost, what, 40 years yeah. after she died or whatever it was. Yeah. 30 Did years. you reach out to, uh, her, uh, to her children as part of the, your research for this book or try to? Absolutely. And what happened? Uh, well, great disappointment is the fact that they have never cooperated. Uh, I don't know if they're still scared or not. I, I look at them as cowards, frankly, to not come forward because their mother did so much for them. 
uh, and all of that, but they never wanted to get involved. They didn't back in 65. They never talked about it to anybody. But here's one of the reasons I think why. Their memories of Dorothy and the fact that uh, she was labeled, uh, you know, a druggie and alcoholic aren't good. And then Richard, the husband who had become an alcoholic, committed suicide about three years later. And they blamed it on the mother. Yeah, and I think that mm -hmm. is the problem that they have with it. Uh, I've, I've spoken with the daughter, and then she didn't want to go forward with it. I've communicated with the youngest son, the one I sent to the White House. I sent him some of Dorothy's memorabilia. But thus far, they've never helped me a bit. What it's a shame. Though, she only <laughs> talked to me, not to me, but to Costello and them, about the little boy. I never knew there was more kids. Yeah, too. She, she was so two. proud of that kid. What was the age difference? Uh, I'd say a couple years apart. Uh, that's, a, that's a good point you bring up. I hope I can mention this. They did try to scare Dorothy, in my opinion. After Pataki gave them the information she was going to put in the book, about a week before, let's see, it would be uh, Halloween. So Halloween before she died on November 8th, what, whatever the distance is there. Uh, she woke up one morning and was so upset, uh, the butler's daughter said, because she had seen a picture of little Carrie in the newspaper from the uh, walking across, uh, running across Central Park. And she just went nuts because she thought somebody is following Carrie. And, and she quickly, uh, you know, got him home. And then with, with Halloween, uh, she took him in a limousine to trick-or-treat. I think that was a final warning, a warning to her saying, stop it. Stop well, that was a message for, for, for sure. Yeah. So yeah. But in, in retrospect, you think what she should have done was uh, publicly broadcast the fact that she was going to leave this alone? Because obviously this resulted in her death. Well, she could have done that. The other thing that I wish to God she had done was made a copy of that file. Uh, Maybe she, she did. She couldn't, she couldn't go down to uh, Kinko's, obviously, but <laughs> she, could, she had a carbon of what she had written, uh, typed on her typewriter. But one way or another, uh, she never gave that to anybody. And we believe if she did have a carbon, she probably kept it to herself and, and that file was confiscated. But, you know, the other thing, reflecting on this and that those, those times... If she really wanted to stop it and took the advice of Costello, it would have stopped. She obviously yeah, she, yeah, she, she yeah. wanted that book to come out. Well, she did. And I think it was in tribute to JFK. She wanted to show what had happened, that basically, you know, he wasn't the target. He really was uh, the new book I'm calling Collateral Damage because he was collateral damage. Exactly. They, they, there's no question about that. They wanted to get that damn Bobby off of their off of their hind end of going after them and all that. And the only way they knew it to do it was JFK. So I think she wanted to expose the truth about that. But you're right, boy. It's too bad that she just didn't make a phone call to Costello and say, "Listen, um, I need some help. Right this is what I'm going to do." And maybe it would have saved her life. Yeah, it would have. And, and there's a similarity, by the way, if you think about it. What if what if uh, Joe DiMaggio had gotten him back involved in Marilyn's death? All he if had to do was come get her at the Calneva, and he, if he'd have gotten involved in her death and slowed her down and everything, and said, "Hey, don't do this. Don't go to the mafia." Maybe like Costello with uh, with Kilgallen, yeah. uh, Joe would have saved her life. I often think about that because I, I, you know, I, that night I heard her screaming at Sinatra. That wow. you know, up till that night, Saturday night, they were trying to convince her. She was already there two days. I was there three days and spent a lot of time. Most, I mean, nobody knew how close I was with her as a friend because mm -hmm. I, I didn't yeah. want anybody to know that. But when she was screaming, I'm going to the press and this and that and the other. And then, you know, to call Joe DiMaggio, and Joe DiMaggio was so threatened by these guys, he called mm -hmm. Frank. He said, what's going on there? He's mind your mm -hmm. own business and don't come. Now, like wow. you're saying, if he came or she called Frank Costello, this may have been out later, but at least she would have got yeah. it out. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think that could have could have helped her. But again, you have to think about it. Marilyn probably thought she was invincible, too. She probably thought that, you know, nobody was going to harm her. You know, and, no, and, you know Marilyn never thought that. Marilyn, to oh. me, my, and I've, I've known her well enough, close enough. She was just a victim she was like a rag doll everybody was using. And ever since, you know, we, we, we got in depth conversations. The parallel her and I had together 
at 12 years old, she was in an orphanage and used to yeah, see the right. water tower at, at Warner Brothers. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I was in Bellevue, and I used to see the Empire State Building. And we related to this many times, because we'd take walks. She'd come out in a disguise at night, and we'd just walk yeah. along the city. She liked going over the Brooklyn Bridge and looking at the city that way. But the thing she'd reveal, she was that naive and that wounded. She mm -hmm. wasn't an intellect. I mean, Dorothy mm -hmm. Carroll no. Gallon was a, an intellect. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I, I think. I think you're right there. And, and what I've been doing, as I say, is trying to put the human side on Marilyn. And I've gone back into her past and I found that that innocent uh, Marilyn growing up and all she had gone through and all of this. And and you can just see, I mean, she was a, I think, who was it that called her a sweet girl? She, she was a sweet girl. She was. And if you go to look at some of the films, there's no business like show business oh my and God, yeah. asphalt jun j jungle. And you see this, this. You know, she just lights up the screen. There's nobody else in the picture when she's there. Right. That beautiful face and and the and the hair and the lips and the smile and all of that, or the seven year itch when, you know, or when she crawls out of that. Uh, here's here's an interesting situation. Um, Billy Woodfield, who was a photographer in California, is the guy that captured her coming out of the pool nude. Well, he's also the the one who introduced Melvin Belli to Earl Ruby. Wow. So there's an interesting connection there, but I've been really looking into Marilyn, uh, the young person, and trying to put that in the book so that people will see uh, the human side of her and, and what she was back then, the, the, the Marilyn really that you knew. Oh, my God. Well, Costello took, brought her here and kept her at the, at the Waldorf for a year when the Xanax wouldn't, uh, you know, they wouldn't let her out of our contract. She wanted to prove that she was a great actress, so she was studying up here with everybody. And, right. and that's how she got involved with Marlon Brando, believe it or not. And then I make a, a movie called Lepke with Tony Curtis, and he tells me how many times he had, well, they were making, you know, Some Like It Hot. I mean, yeah, Some Like It Hot. I mean, he's just on and on and on of how this girl just shared herself because she thought that's yeah. all she could give was her body yeah. and her friendship. Yeah. That was, her, that was her introduction. Very sophisticated. I mean, yeah, it's woman, just sad in many ways yeah. because she wanted to be treated seriously, but she just also just craved love. She wanted yeah. somebody to love her. And I, I really believe that she thought JFK was going to divorce Jackie. And then when he dumped I her, totally that Bobby that. Kennedy was going to do the same thing. He yeah. was going to get rid of Ethel and all the damn children they had. No, I mean, that's that's definitely, when you look at the profile of these two different women, mm -hmm. I mean, they're so opposite. Because, mm -hmm. as you know, Dorothy Kilgallen was sophisticated, even though she was a dropout. This lady, mm -hmm. what she did socially and moved herself in the, in the circles of anybody that's right. anybody, the Rockefellers, and, and you name them, she was accepted. But Marilyn always thought she had to lay down and, mm -hmm. and, and let them have their way with them. It's sad. Yeah, it's, it's, sad to, it's sad to think about that. They both had power in their own way, but right. uh, Marilyn, Marilyn just, uh, you know, she was just used all the time. Dorothy never let that happen, but she made the biggest mistake of her life when she trusted this Ron Pataki, and that was her downfall. Uh, and, and, and from then on, she was, as this guy said, she was dead, and uh, that's exactly what happened to her. Yeah. Was she, uh, Mark, uh, let me interject you. Was she buried or cremated? She was buried. And in fact, at one point I, I looked in, Cyril Wick was going to help me. We're, we were going to exhume her body. Yeah, you need the family for that. And see if the DNA would, would uh, help. And I looked into a court that might help us out east and all of that. But th that didn't happen. But, uh, you know, I've got two people that email me all the time, uh, these two gentlemen. I mean, Dorothy was a true patriot. She basically gave up her life in the line of duty as a journalist to try to find the truth about the JFK assassination. These two guys go to her grave every every week and put flowers on there. How were they involved with her? Were they just fans? They're just fans. But people all over the world have fallen in love with Dorothy. And I'm just so pleased whether we ever get an investigation or not. You know, because I, I, you guys probably know, uh, after she died, she was she was just ignored. She's not in any of the JFK assassination books by these so-called experts, you know, Posner or Bugliosi or anybody else. They they never uh, talk about Dorothy's columns or, you know, her first column after 
uh, JFK died was six weeks later or six days later. The Oswald file must not close. And then she just kept going on and on, uh, going on a, a one way street the wrong way. No wonder she had the enemies that she did. Right. You know, it, it's amazing, you know, uh, hearing this story and I'm reading it. This is so sad and, and how evil uh, uh, organized crime could be. I mean, they they ripped this woman away from her family, her yeah. kids. Uh, you know, couldn't she have been given a good talking to in person? I mean, I granted there was so much at stake here that they couldn't take a chance on her uh, uh, writing a column about being approached by somebody to keep her mouth shut. Well, you know, and I mean, and no, I could see, understand that. That, that. You know, but well, it's just know, so it's a sad story. No, you know why her her relationship, and I know this to be true, with Frank Costello, mm -hmm. they would never allow it. Costello mm -hmm. could never let her write a column or anything. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That would be it. I mean, she would just have to withdraw from it. And she wasn't going to do that. No, I don't, I don't think she would have. Because I think that she felt like that this was the, the story of a lifetime. You know, and that she was the only one to, to, uh, to interview Ruby. Then she exposed her Warren Commission testimony before the well, you know, Eli before Warren, it was supposed to be released. You know, that, she that was, was the she biggest that joke, Mark. You know that. that getting Eli Warren to head the commission, that was Chicago owned that guy. I'm not Earl sure. Warren. Earl Warren. Yeah. Right, you know. That was a joke. Was a never joke. they never yeah. called Dorothy. They never called Dorothy who knew more about the assassination than anybody. And they just completely ignored those Ruby trial transcripts that I talked about. Uh, you know, it's it's just amazing. There's such distortions of history out it there, just and that's what I've been trying to correct. It just ties it all to the mob. It all ties it to Chicago, New York, and 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 uh, California. Mickey well, if anybody's if anybody's uh, interested in this topic, and after listening to Mark Shaw, I can't see how you would not be interested in this topic. Mm -hmm. His book, Denial of Justice, uh, and this comes from a writer and a fan. Now, Mark, you have another fan. Mm -hmm. uh, and and as you and I know, there's, uh, no one is more critical of writers than other writers. You know, but I, I can tell you that this is one of the most fascinating books I've ever read. And the best thing about it, and I said this before, it's so readable. You know, you have so so many facts that you bring this woman to life, and when she dies, you actually feel the pain of the family. Well, I'm I'm always appreciative when people say it's easily read, but I will tell you, I'm from a small town in Indiana. I barely made it out of Purdue in six years and law school in five. I don't have a big vocabulary, so most of my books are very easily read. <laughs> <laughs> well, that uh, that paid off. I'm not just saying that because you're here. This is a really good book. Well, thank you. That's nice. And, and yeah. I, again, I applaud you guys for what you're doing. You know, Gianni, you're a slice of history. You're a slice of history, and Pat, you've brought this alive and everything, so... I commend you for that. I really do. Well, that's it's a great compliment. Amazing. I thank you. But all, all the accolades go to Pat. I gave him what I lived, and he put it in a story form that's been so accepted. And for <laughs> you praising our book, that's I, I think Pat knows how we feel about that. It's amazing. Well, I'd, rather, I'd rather give you all the credit, if you don't mind. Is okay, we'll take it. <laughs> uh, I, I well, think uh, Gianni, because... Uh, you know, no, I'm just kidding, of course. It's a collaboration, and, and you've right. done a wonderful job of telling the story, Pat. Well, Mark, thank you so much for being our guest. And and by Mark, the way, you're on... invited on the show anytime you want. You got all the numbers. Yeah, when, uh, this is tell us about, tell us about this, uh, your next book. You said you were writing another book. Well, I got so many people telling me uh, or asking me, can you, con can you connect Dorothy Kilgallen's death and Marilyn Monroe's with JFK's? And so I finally got to the point where I'd gotten so much material. There's a desk I have over here. It was about, I don't know, a foot tall, at least, of all the new material or even more. And so I decided to see what I could do with that. And I have found, uh, Gianni's right, that they were, uh, Dorothy and Marilyn were, were opposites, but there's an awful lot of similarities in their lives and similarities in, in, in their deaths as well. So I'm, I'm basically going ahead and comparing those deaths, uh, weaving them in with the JFK assassination, because the Kennedys, of course, weave into both stories with the Marilyn story and the Dorothy story. So um, I, I'm, I'm taking it that with that approach and calling it collateral damage, the senseless deaths of basically these three individuals, because none of the three should have died. Uh, it right. just shouldn't have happened. And fortunately, then there's been all this distortion of history. So that's what well, I'm after. 
I'm going to put you on the spot here. When do you think you'll have it done and when do you think it'll be published? Uh, I would hope I'd have it done within a couple months and it would be published the first of the year after we get through. uh, uh, Hopefully, uh, God willing, we'll get through this virus. Please stay safe, all of you. We're trying to do that in California and I hope you will. And hopefully it would be out the first of the year. Okay, Mark, once again, thank you so much and uh, stay in touch. And and we would love to have you back, particularly when the new book comes out. Definitely. Absolutely. Or any other time you want to talk to us. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, if you want to hang around a while, you said you wanted to speak to Gianni off air. We're going to be doing uh, uh, another mailbox. Your emails, uh, listener emails. Uh, uh, okay. Hang around. You know, Mark, I'll tell you. I'll tell, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll just send an email with uh, a question that I have. How's that? That's better. Okay. Thank you. That's fine. Okay. Perfect. Thank Bye. you. Thank you, Mark. Have a good night. Good night, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Well, we had a great guest. Thanks to Pat. For you all listened, that was Mark Shaw. He's got so many books. Start following him as you're following us. And we're, I'm telling you, that was a, a, a great show. I mean, that's yeah, so great. Was, and, and so was last week's. So yeah. Excellent show. Yeah. And for once again, I'm going to mention the name of the book again. Write this down. Denial of Justice by Mr. Mark Shaw. Right. Get it? You're going to love it. So let's go to the mailbag. All right, let's do it. So I'll jump in here. Please. First one I want to share who, who is a comment. You? <laughs> yeah, you I know I was too sure you didn't say much. There was so much back and forth. It was like it was amazing. You got to admit, I was fascinated. It was very absorbing. Oh my god. Oh yes. Okay. Absolutely. All right. First one is a comment from Bob that I want to share, which reads: First heard Mr. Russo on Coast to Coast interview in January of 2020, and I had to buy the book. I just found out about the podcast last week in March. I'm in sales, so I drive a lot. In one week, I have listened to 20 of the episodes, and I can't stop. Very interesting life story, much like a real-life Forrest Gump life story. You never know what famous person will appear next. Thank you. That's very nice. Thank you very much. It's nice, right? Yeah. All right. Next one is from Gustav. Gustav says, what's the difference between a made man and the mafia and an associate? I'm obviously no expert, but they seem to work together, commit the same crimes, etc." How does one become made after being an associate? I just began listening to the podcast and I'm catching up from the beginning. Great show. Well, an associate is a, a wannabe. And after he proves himself in whatever capacity, either, either as an earner or doing work for them, like hurting somebody or killing somebody, then he can become made when they open the books. The books are not always open all the time, you know. What does that course, mean, the books being open? Well, the thing is this. It's not like I want to be a Boy Scout and you go sign up. When they open the books and want to take in new people and you put in yourself, then you'll be asked to come in. Well, uh, uh, Megan, are you interested? <laughs> not particularly. Oh, okay. I, have to I, say. I thought there was, you, uh, there, there was an entree there, you know. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Next one is from Maria. Maria says, I've always been a huge Godfather fan and consider Al Pacino to be one of the best actors of his time. I'm interested in whether any of you have seen Hunters on Amazon Prime and what you think of the series. It's a real departure from anything Pacino has done before. I haven't heard, but I heard good things about it. And these two young actors, I think, are amazing. I binge watched the entire series in two days. You did? Yes, I did. Uh, it's a it's a ten parter. Uh, once you start it, you, you you can't you can't get away from it. It's got a little uh, Quentin Tarantino motif in it. What's the genre? But it's uh, it takes place in 1977. Al Pacino plays uh, uh, an old Jew survivor of uh, of uh, the Holocaust, and he makes it his mission to uh, go after uh, Nazis living in the United States and not bring them to justice, but to kill them. Pacino is so good in this. Wow! Uh, you would think that he's the real deal. Now there's a twist ending. There's a lot going on. Highly recommend it. Just for Pacino alone. Wow. Uh, but the rest of the, the cast is excellent, very quirky. If you're a fan of uh, Quentin Tarantino's type of direction, you're going to like this. It's a, it's a really good series. But Currently on uh, Netflix, 10 parts. Well, it's Amazon, right? It's Amazon. Oh, it's Amazon Prime. Pardon me. But I'm yeah. saying Quentin didn't, didn't direct. He didn't no, have, no. Uh, it's I just similar who, style. I, I don't know who did, but I mean, you, know, you try to pick apart Pacino's acting. And you just can't do it. I mean, well, it's, really? she is anyway. so good in this part. But the thing uh, is if he doesn't get nominated for something, one it's of an the, injustice. I'm sure he will. But one of the kids, there's two young kids, the co-stars, 
there's a bunch of young kids. Well, the one kid, I, I, I don't know his name, but he, he's an Italian. They're looking at him to play me younger in our series. Really? Oh, right interesting. Now. Yeah. Well, well everybody cool. in there was great. Whoever this is, uh, he's good. Because <laughs> they're all, all good. <laughs> all right. no, we'll, we'll watch it. Highly recommend it. All right. Next one is from Maureen. Maureen says, quick survey. How many times have each of you seen The Godfather and why? Johnny, mm. you watch your own stuff? No, not really. Have you ever watched it all the way through? Oh, yeah. I've done it. When, you know, this is a perfect time to watch something like that. I, I don't, you know, it's so far my past 48 years ago. It's, mm. uh, I mean, I, I can't say I've seen it more than twice all the way through at one time. I've seen pieces of it. 5,000 times. I, I can honestly say I've seen it at least 100 times. Really? When, at least. When Frank Wyman, who was our agent, called me and said, you ever hear of Gianni Russo? And I said, you're putting me on, right? Just like, <laughs> you have, have, have you ever heard of Santa Claus? You know, come on. Oh, really? I said, why? And then he went into, you know, he was looking for a book. And I said, ah, my, my dream as a, as a writer has come true. I, I, oh, I get the right. Oh no, I'm a huge Godfather fan. Huge. Wow. How about you, Megan? Mine is probably five, which does not sound like a lot, but it's my mom's favorite movie, so I had seen it a couple times with her, and then since meeting Gianni a couple times as well, because now I got to get to look at it more closely. Yeah, AMC has a Godfather festival on, I think, every week, right, Gianni? Yeah. <laughs> that is true. It does seem like it's on, on a lot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I, you know uh, what it is? It's it's a, it's a it's praising the work. Because after 48 years, it holds they up. wouldn't do that unless they're holding the ratings. Oh, yeah. Oh, well, yeah, of course it's still so going to be viewed. Who, who's going to show a movie if nobody's watching it? Exactly. Yeah. Particularly AMC. They can yeah. show anything they want. Right. Right. I mean, it's a classic. Uh, yeah. I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. All right. Next one is from Mario. Mario says, Gianni, you seem like a very busy man. What is a normal day in the life of Gianni Russo like? Give us some insight, please. Well, I, I am uh, very uh, diverse in some of my things. Really? Well, I, I, have, I, I, I have about 10 hours a day of free time, and I try to put it to work. Right now, I'm, I'm walking five miles every other day, two hours, and either I'm praying, studying music while I'm walking, and then I have you know, my businesses, and we're looking at another project in books, movies, uh, my product line, <laughs> keep going. Yeah, but hey, but what have you, you done lately? <laughs> what I've done lately, it's going to knock our whole audience out. I just recovered eight stools in my bar and disco. Well, I am amazed. <laughs> <laughs> You're so handsy, aren't you? My my couch needs reupholstering. Could hey. you stop over? Well, you live close. I tell you, bring it over. I'll do it. <laughs> I'll put a couple of stamps on it and send it to you. How's that? All right. You were definitely yeah, more that's handy a, that, than that's, I am. That's, that's a hidden side of you I never knew. Yeah. Right. yeah, remember when you fixed that, that bench that we all oh, collapsed? Yeah, yeah. yeah, he's a very handy guy. All right. All right. Next one is from Eddie. Eddie says, of the five families that compromise the mafia, which do you consider the most powerful and why? Gambinos. The Gambino family, just because of my relationship with them, number one. The sheer number, size, right? Excuse me? Sheer size. The, the biggest. size of it, and most yeah. people don't realize the Gambino family. I mean, Carlo Gambino came to America as a made man. He wasn't made here. From the Gambino family in Sicily, that is still going on. Because <laughs> that's mm -hmm. how Frank Cali got here. He just got assassinated last year. So uh, how many members? Last I heard, this was a while ago, it was about uh, 2,000 made and associates. Combined, I mean, a lot more than that now. Yeah. yeah. Okay. In all, in all the areas. Yeah. Areas. Yeah. Hmm. Geographical. Okay. All right. This is the last one for tonight. This one is from Derek. Derek says, "I love this podcast so much. I almost wish you did it twice a week. Sometimes it's so hard waiting for the next one. How long do you think you'll continue doing this? A hundred episodes? I hope it never ends." Well. Okay. Right. Sold. It may not end because we're, we're, we're actually, I mean, we, we enjoy it also. I speak for the three of us, I know, because we're, we're constantly collaborating, getting new ideas. You're going to see our format change now. 
Yeah, you're going to see a lot more. Yeah. You're going to see guest stars, who, yeah. good guest stars, not just people we pick, we pick off off the street. Right. You know, right. the people that have something to say and haven't said it before. Right. So, I mean, uh, we're not going anywhere. But what we need for the, all of you out there is to tell your friends. Make an effort to expand the audience and, you know, broaden our audience and maybe even broaden how many shows we do a week. So it's 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 that easy. We like it. Mm. We're glad you like it. But that we're going to say, stay safe, pray, God bless you all, and we'll see you next week. Good night, everybody. All right. Good night, good night guys. Everybody. If you're feeling sad and lonely, there's a service I could render. I'm the one who loves you only. I could be so warm, so tender. Call me. Don't be afraid, you can call me. Maybe it's late, but just call me. Tell me and I'll be around. Or when it seems your friends desert you. Thank you for tuning in to the Hollywood Godfather podcast. You can contact Gianni Russo, Patrick Picciarelli, or myself with your questions and comments through the contact section of our website, hollywoodgodfatherpodcast.com. You can also call and leave us a message at 646-776-3038. Regarding Gianni's motivational speaking appearances, you can visit his website, giannirusso.com. You can also visit amazon.com for a listing of books Patrick Picciarelli has written. Remember to follow us on Instagram at Hollywood Godfather Podcast, as well as leave us a review on iTunes. If you'd like to know what you like about what we're doing, what you'd like to hear in the future, and anything else you might suggest to improve our podcast. Most importantly, hit the subscribe button. We'll be back next week with stories of the mob and Hollywood, as well as answers to your emails and voicemails. Good night.